It all happened on a day, that joyful Christmas day planned in eternity by God the Father and declared by angels as this day which Christ the Saviour would be born. On this day, at the perfect fullness of time in the prophesied city of Bethlehem, a promised Saviour was born to a perishing world. Jesus' birth shook an unassuming silent night into a spectacular night. So it was that in the manger lay the infant, Jesus Christ, God's treasured promise revealed in the glory of Christmas. The central promise of the Old Testament, around which the entirety of the Old Testament can be put in sort of an interpretive orbit is the promise of the coming Savior. If you do not read your Old Testament through the lens of Jesus Christ, the then coming Savior, you are not reading your Old Testament accurately. That promise radiates from the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3 to the signet ring of Zerubbabel in, uh, in Malachi. And nowhere is that promise more clearly expressed than in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is writing against the context in his day of the, the horrific, impending Assyrian invasion of Israel. It is not a pleasant season in history. And against that backdrop, the promise of the coming Savior. I want to invite you to, to grab the Pew Bible, your, your own Bible, the Bible app, and come with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. Isaiah, chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
for to us a child is born. Roman numeral one, the gloomy context of his coming. I've already alluded to it. This is written against the backdrop of the Assyrian invasion of Israel. If you go back to chapter 8, it's, it, the details there are given. And it's, it's going to be bad. And the people of God in the land of Israel, only ethnically can they even be called the people of God. They are consulting with all manner of, of oddball spiritual influences. They're going to mediums and necromancers. They're, well, letter A on your outline. It's a time of darkness. A time of darkness. A time when there was a great deal of spirituality, but little love for the living God. If we fast forward to our 21st century, in this era that the historians have already begun to call the postmodern era, I, I grew up in, in a lot of my life in the so-called modern era, the 60s, 70s, 80s even, my, my childhood, my young adulthood. And in the modern era, the, the prevailing worldview outside of Christ was sort of a, a, a secular mechanical humanism, a naturalism that the world was just a great big machine and everything that could be explained could be explained in sort of mechanical cause and effect. That worldview has greatly declined. And as we come now to the, this first quarter mark of the 21st century, the prevailing worldview among, among mankind is very spiritual. Uh, from, from people greeting each other with namaste, which they have no idea what it means, to, to, to all manner of oddball spiritual explorations. And the kingdom of darkness is pleased to have those people who would be spiritual outside of Christ. If you want to be spiritual outside of Christ, the universe is full of spirits that will play along with that and will gleefully guide you straight to hell. Do not accommodate spirituality outside of the Holy Spirit of God sent by God the Father and Jesus the Son to beckon us home with conviction and call us to Jesus. If you're a, I'm a spiritual person, but I wouldn't call myself a Christian, you're going to die and go to hell forever. Don't do it. Come to Jesus who has come to us. This child comes to a time of darkness. He comes to a time of, of, of depression. The, the second verse, or the third verse of, of this, this passage, Isaiah 9, 3, you have increased joy. They rejoice before you. We've, we've talked about joy and its definition. Joy transcends circumstances of the moment. Happiness is rooted in what is happening. My happenings dictate in many ways my happiness. 
Joy is rooted in the, in the certain knowledge purchased by Christ and assured by his faithfulness, not mine, hallelujah. Joy is secure because of Jesus who has made everything that's going to matter forever settled forever for the benefit of the child of God. Our joy is rooted in Jesus. And apart from him, life flashes on by and eternity, nothing to be joyfully anticipated, not outside of Christ. Oh, but for the Christian, next Sunday we, we have an annual sort of looking back on those to whom we've said farewell this year, but even more so looking forward to heaven. We feel that that's a, that's a good way to finish each year, to be reminded of the year that has passed, but more so even to focus forward on the glorious future that awaits the child of God, a future we could never earn and never deserve. Oh, if you're in Christ this morning and you're feeling, you're feeling blue, I know the holidays can be a difficult time for some people. But even as the happenings of this year may have left you blue, do not lose sight of joy. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. He comes to a time of darkness. He comes to a time of depression. He comes to a time of defeat. This morning, the nation of Israel is at war. This morning, there is war in the Ukraine. This morning, there is uh, the, the, the people of Taiwan have the, have the weapons of the mainland Chinese pointed at them all the time. This morning, that nut job in North Korea is up to who knows what. We're in a world in a state of perpetual roiling warfare and conflict. It is a fallen and broken world. But one day, this coming king, future to Isaiah, both past and future to us, will render war obsolete. And he will do so in supernatural power. I love the illustration, the allusion that verse four makes. The, the yoke of the burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor will be, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The victory that's, that, that is there for the Christian, the victory that is coming for planet earth in the reign of the Prince of Peace will be utterly supernatural. The reference to Midian is a reference to uh, Judges chapter six, seven, and especially Judges chapter eight. When, when the, uh, the, the Midianites had, had come into the land of Israel and an innumerable army of Midianites was uh, to be opposed by, by the judge Gideon leading 32,000 men. And the living God showed up to Gideon and said, uh, there is a problem with the way this battle is setting up. 
And if you had been there, you'd have agreed. If you'd have been there, you'd have said, yeah, at 32,000, we are badly outnumbered. This could go really badly for us. You never want to go into a fair fight. One of the lessons my, my younger son told me that he picked up during his, his years in the army. I love this. He said, if you ever find yourself in a fair fight, your tactics stink. <laughs> I, I like that. If you're going to fight, fight to win. Well, the, the Lord said to, to Gideon and his 32,000 men, the problem is not that you're badly outnumbered. The problem is you're not outnumbered enough. Because if this battle unfolds such that you think you could have won it, you're going to think you won it. So the Lord first cut Gideon's army down to 10,000, and then he cut it again to 300 against innumerable foes to set up the reality that we are in a situation where we cannot win apart from a victory that is handed us by the living God. I told you, if you read the Old Testament without seeing Jesus, you're not reading the Old Testament. Because you and I, because of our sin debt, are in a situation from which we cannot recover apart from the supernatural victory handed us by the living God. From the cross where he made payment for our sin, the empty tomb where he declared his victory, and now the extended offer of grace that removes for those who will trust him instantaneously the entirety of your sin debt now and forever. A victory we cannot win, a victory he offers us as on the day of Midian. It was a time of darkness, depression, and defeat. Roman 2, the gracious character of his coming. A child. A child. Helpless. Dependent. What an unexpected way for God the Son to appear. Crying out for food. Food was his idea. Not just any given meal, the concept of food was his idea. What a perfect moment. <laughs> thank you, Jesus. I'm, I hope the little one is fine, but thank you, Jesus. By the way, if you don't like the sound of a crying baby in a church service, it's you that is the problem. I, uh, this is a family gathering, not a theatrical performance. A son is given. God the Son. I like the sentimental overhead that goes with Christmas, I suppose. I don't mind singing the 
sort of sappy, melodious things we sing, although that song we sang at the last, that is a Christmas song. Whoa. I have an eight foot tall, inflatable gnome <laughs> dominating my front yard with sheer silliness. But I have not lost sight, and I trust you won't either, that this one who has come has not come for sentimentality and silliness, but has come because of our sin. And the only one who could ever be set up to be the sacrifice for sinners is God the Son himself. A gift to us, a son, is given. Oh, the false religion of works righteousness has plagued mankind since Cain worked hard to put together a produce section and present it to the living God in the Garden of Eden, which produce section God rejected, not because he rejected Cain, per se, but because he rejects outright works righteousness. Unto us a son is given. You can heap up a lifetime of good deeds and all of your lifetime of good deeds will do nothing but further your offense before a holy God because you thought you were capable of working hard enough and being good enough to fulfill his utter holiness and righteousness. That idea is horrifically offensive to him. Thus, the son is given. He is a gift, a child, a son, a gift. Roman numeral three, the grand completeness of his coming. These four titles of God given in the latter part of verse six should be emblazoned on the heart of every believer. If you need reconciliation, and you do, he is the wonderful counselor. I praise God for competent counselors. Without apology, there have been times in my life, multiple times in my life, where I've had to sit down and pursue godly wisdom from a brother or sister in Christ who is not living inside my head, who can help me unpack and restack some stuff. Um, I have been blessed many times to sit in the company of competent counselors and I praise God for competent counselors. But I praise God all the more that I have a wonderful counselor who has spoken and who is not silent and who has left us in his word all we need for life and godliness. We have the wonderful counselor. We have in righteousness the mighty God uncompromising in his power, uncompromising in his holiness, uncompromising in his purpose. 
Adrian Rogers, who was a friend and pastor to me for many years, used to say, you wonder what this world is coming to? I'll tell you what this world is coming to. This world is coming to King Jesus. That's what this world is coming to. And if I thought history was some sort of random, hivey, hodgepodge of interconnected chaos, I don't know how I would stand upright. I think I'd be somewhere in a dark corner, curled in a fetal position, waiting for the end to catch up with me. But because of his grace extended to me, in which I have cast my lot by my faith, I am aligned forever, as are you, child of God, if you have trusted Jesus. We are aligned together with the mighty God. Nothing is random. Nothing is left to chance. My greatest fear on a given day has to be summarized as, Lord, today I fear I might not get my way. And some of my getting my way might be really, really bad. Thank you, Lord, that you always get your way. And your way is holy and right. In relationship, he is the everlasting father. <clears throat> I've shared so many times the great benefit I still enjoy that I have my 92-year-old father. We'll, we'll see him tomorrow up at his home, he and mom's home up, up north of Tampa. One day on this earth, my father and I will say goodbye to one another. I don't know which of us will go first. He's 92 years old and I'm driving on I-75 tomorrow. <laughs> so our relationship on earth will not be everlasting. But I have a father who is an everlasting father. He never needed me. Paul made it clear in the Mars Hill sermon on Acts, in Acts 17 that our God does not need us. Every now and then I'll come across a sermon title, 10 Things God Needs From You. I don't have to read one more word. The sermon is foolish because the title is so astonishingly foolish. He does not need anything from you. But he, as your everlasting father, has extended to you everything. That same sermon, Paul said, it is in him that we live and move and have our being. This baby of Bethlehem extends to you. And some of you, some of you have what I have, the benefit of a daddy who loved Jesus long before he ever heard of me. And I grew up under the influence of a daddy who loved my mama, loved Jesus, and loved me, all true to this day. Some of you did not. And for some of you, the image of father has been less than fully realized in your own memory in your own childhood. Maybe you had a father who was absentee, or a father who was emotionally distant, or a father who was abusive. The living God will never be absent, aloof, or abusive. And he is an everlasting father. 
In reign, he is the prince of peace in rule, the prince of peace. This world will one day have peace. You ask, well, what is the, what is the ideal form of government? Well, many of us with our fierce commitment to the United States and our Constitution would say that's easy. The ideal form of government is a constitutional republic. I beg to differ. I would hold that the ideal form of government is an absolute omnipotent monarch who is absolutely trustworthy. His name is Jesus, and his reign will be a reign of absolute peace. When omnipotence occupies a throne, there is peace. Because there's no room at that time for conflict. Today, would you have peace with God? The offer emanates from the manger of Bethlehem through the cross of Calvary, the empty tomb of Jerusalem to the throne of God. And that offer comes to you if you will turn from your sin and trust Jesus Christ by faith. You can know the Prince of Peace. Finally, the glorious conquest of his coming. Letter A, his present government. The first part of verse, verse six, or the middle part of the Verse six, the government shall be upon his shoulder. Verse seven, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He rules and he reigns and today he invites. Come to Jesus. If today you belong to Jesus, draw nearer to him. Cultivate the presence of God the Spirit in your life. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in his word. Walk in the Spirit. Love him more in the days ahead than you have loved him in the days past. Know his word. We talk a lot around here about, about growing in our discipline to think biblically. My challenge question for you, my growing friend, growing Christian friend, is when is the last time something that you encountered in God's word forced in you a change of action or attitude? When is the last time God's word challenged you in a way that you came away going, well, because God has said that, my obedience now requires this of me. And if you can't think of a time recently than that, that that has happened, Two things, either you've already matured to the point that no further changes need making. <laughs> I'm glad you're laughing. Or you're not serious in your walk with God. Get serious. He rules and he reigns and he invites us to align with him. His planned glory one day on the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will return to earth and reign over the earth for a thousand years from the throne of David. His planned glory. Oh, I want to see Jesus. And I don't know if I'll go to him in death or if he'll come to me at his glorious appearing. 
but I want to see Jesus. One day every knee, the book of Philippians tells us, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want to have practiced that so that when I get to do it before my Savior in person, I'll already be used to doing it. And for those of you who would live your life outside of Christ, be assured your knee will bow and your tongue will fruitlessly and bitterly confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in spite of how you have lived, in spite of the contempt you have shown him in this life. I'd rather that moment be a moment of joyful reunion as opposed to a moment of, of bitter realization. His permanent grace. From this time forth and forevermore he will reign. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What that verse is saying or that sentence is saying is it is the enthusiastic will of the eternal God that will accomplish the saving mission of this coming child. Isaiah led people in his time to look forward to it. We call you to look back upon his first coming, but to joyfully in our time of spiritual darkness, depression and defeat, to look forward to and long for the coming of Jesus. God bless you and Merry Christmas.